Hi, everyone. This is Christy, your host, here to let you know that this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by Class Composer. Class Composer is an online tool to help elementary schools create equitable class lists quickly and painlessly. Typically, school staff members average between 20 and 50 hours on their literal knees shuffling index cards, post-it notes, or blue and pink papers in an effort to create balanced class lists each year, and then still end up frustrated because balance is impossible. There are simply too many data points to account for. Academic highs and lows, ELLs, 504s, IEPs, race, gender, behavior issues, and even kids who just don't group well together. And yet, as we all know, these placement decisions are critical to a positive, productive learning environment. Class Composer is an easy-to-use software that can not only handle all the data points and consistently produce balanced lists, but can do it in a fraction of the time and without knee pads. Find Class Composer at edcuration.com. You'll never go back. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. It's a little bit of social work, a little bit of science, and a little bit of passion. The most valuable resource is also their time. It just can't be wasted on fluff. But we have to be able to continuously poll our students and just give them voice. We have the big ticks that are totally going to push their thinking. Throughout the past year, as we've experienced a worldwide pandemic, nationwide race riots and protests, and all the fears and hardships that have accompanied those events, teachers are reporting rampant absenteeism, low engagement and achievement, and a lot of depressed and anxious kids. Trauma can slow down or completely stop our ability to learn. It's simple. When our bodies sense a threat, Energy rushes toward brain regions that specialize in averting danger, which means that energy shifts away from the regions of the brain that help us learn or take in new information. We're all worried about the learning loss and feeling the need to push our students even harder as in-person learning returns. But our students aren't going to return to our classrooms following this crisis, ready to jump back in at full speed. They're traumatized. We won't be successful in getting them caught up academically without acknowledging and addressing their social and emotional needs through trauma-informed practices. On the upside, the pandemic has given us the opportunity to step back and think about the ways we want to move forward differently in our schools and classrooms. That's why we are grateful to be hearing today from Deanna Goodrich and Yeruel Duruin who are the district managers for restorative practices in Denver Public Schools. We've asked them here today to help us understand how we can create more nurturing spaces for our students and safer places for them to return to. Talk about, I don't know that that is a familiar title for all districts across the country. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. 
So mm-hmm. talk about what a restorative process coordinator does. Sure. So yeah, our positions are fairly unique. Not a lot of school districts have restorative process coordinators in their schools, let alone having district coordinators. And so our role is to assess and assist in implementation of restorative process across the district. And so we support over 200 schools in their implementation process. We also work very individually with their RP coordinators to better understand what climate and culture looks like in their schools. Although implementation is kind of the word for it, I think climate and culture is really what we're diving into and understanding what that is very, very unique in each school. And so it takes a lot of time to go through and and understand what makes that school different than another and how we can tweak some of our resources and guidance to make sure that restorative process works within their building. Deanna, what percentage of schools or districts would you say, if you know, are even doing this kind of work? That is a very good question. I would say a lot of schools are trying. I would say about over 50% of schools are really looking to implement restorative practices. Where they're at in kind of the continuum of being at the very beginning and being a full RP school is all over the continuum. (laughs) It's everywhere. So we have some schools that are just starting out. We have some schools that are have been doing it for a while, but need some tweaking. And we also have some schools that have really done a great job at mastering it. So I would say about 50% are committed to the work, but what that looks like is varies quite a bit. I am curious if you have a sense of when the tide started to turn with schools and districts toward a bigger focus on climate and culture. I think it started with a lot of the work that happened in Oakland in the 70s, you know, this is, this is the roots of what's happening, right? Is schools that were opening there, work that was happening within the black and brown communities. Farther than that, it goes back, you know, restorative process goes back to the actual frameworks and mindsets of indigenous and First Nation communities and how they work to resolve and bring back in community members when something has happened, how they reconcile. And this was by them brought to the American consciousness It's not a new concept, but I think the shifting to the deeper understanding of how it supports all healthy culture and climate, how it is connected to the impacts of equity, race and identity issues that we have happening within schools, I think that that consciousness is newer and is still spreading even here within Denver. You're the two people then that maybe can answer this question that I have wondered about for so long. I've been out of the classroom for, gosh, probably going on six years now, six and a half years. But when I was in the classroom, there still wasn't a lot of focus on climate and culture. And social emotional learning that we didn't, you know, we we weren't attending to standards around that or anything. And you said in your conference session, you mentioned that social emotional learning is really the foundation to all learning, which we know, right, from the, you mentioned the 70s, back in the 70s, when this work first started. And Maslow was doing his work. Why are we just now waking up to this in our education system in a bigger way? Who wants to tackle that? (laughs) I know you will have some thoughts as well. So maybe I'll start us off. I think one big component is that society and our nation, I mean, nationwide, worldwide, we really haven't had a huge focus on mental health and social emotional learning as a, a larger community. And so I think That's really mirrored within our education systems. 
But I think specific to restorative process, I think a lot of people call it restorative justice. And so when you think about justice, right, it it fits into the judicial system. And so a lot of what people think of restorative process is that it's another alternative way to think about discipline. But really, it's, it's a much bigger component, including that climate and culture. And so I think just like many other implementations, interventions for schools in the last 25, 30, we could argue probably longer, has really been focused on how do we have kids sit in seats, behave, listen, and learn. And I think what we're trying to figure out more broadly is how do we create a community for students to feel comfortable to learn, to talk about things that are going on. There's a lot of evolution to still continue to happen, but I think even within restorative process, we are still starting to try to make that shift from restorative justice in the judicial system to how it plays out in schools. Yeah, thanks. That was a great answer, Deanna. I think that was an awesome answer. <laughs> and I think so much of it does stem from power dynamics and our social structures and how we've, we have industrialized school systems, right? We have disconnected from the history of how we set these schools up. They have been very industrialized, as I think Deanna pointed out. And that leads us to this domination hierarchy of teacher, student, be quiet so you can get this learning done and we can move through it. And I also think that we haven't prepared a lot of our staff within schools to understand human development, how human development works and how we should build our structure of our school around that to support students throughout the progress of their education. Until we kind of have those conversations, right, we come at those conversations from a student-child perspective instead of an adult-need perspective, which is to get through the school day or to get through the lesson. I don't think we get to the right conversation and we're in old hierarchies of power that need to be restructured and we need to think more in the terms of collaboration, which I don't think is being taught in colleges and universities right now to educators. It's interesting because a similar trend is happening in, in corporations and in business with an increased focus on company culture, mindfulness, health and wellness for their employees, realizing that you're just going to get better outcome all around when you treat people holistically and create an environment where they can thrive. Why is that such new news to all of us? I don't know. But I'm curious, in your session, we received a a pretty high-level conceptual examination of the restorative process, and you talked about trauma-informed instruction. And I just want our listeners to know that they can find that session on our YouTube channel. I'll put a link in the notes. But I'd really like for us to get granular today and give people a picture of how these practices make a difference pragmatically. What do these strategies look like in classrooms and how do they impact students? We've adopted a phrase recently, Maslow before you bloom, which actually was new to me. One of my previous podcast guests said that to me and I thought, oh, wow, that's that's a catchphrase now. It's become a catchphrase, which is lovely. But how do we address this in a way that is more than just checking off boxes for Castle Standards or but also doesn't require dismantling our whole system, like what you were just saying. How do we do this as a math teacher or a history teacher or an art teacher, computer science, like you were just saying, Yuri? Well, we have to get through our content, right? We're not, and we're not trained as therapists. So what does this look like? Well, I think, honestly, the truth is that the goal has to be to changing the system, right? There is no change in the classroom unless the ultimate intention 
is a strategic change to actually how our classrooms run, our school runs. We work with community and parents. We work with kids. If that's the goal, then we start to make those shifts like in a classroom atmosphere, right? And so I I think that that's one of the points is that it has to be a goal to dismantle the system. What we've been doing hasn't worked. That's what the outcome proof has showed us in the data, right? Like what we have done doesn't work. We need a new system. So I think restorative process is part of innovating that with your community, your specific staff, school, area community. At a granular level in a schoolroom, what we talk a lot about, and Deanna, feel free to jump in, is to talk about the de-escalation, right? And this goes back to kind of the SEL that you were talking about. We see in schools where they're actually a restorative school, right? Which means we were focused on reconciliation, healthy community, learning skills when we mess up and moving forward. When we are setting that tone, 80% of what we do to be a restorative school is proactive. It is not responsive to a behavior. It is not discipline-oriented. That's only 20% of what we do. So from that perspective, you are changing and dismantling the system, right? Because your system you set up currently, and, and by you, I mean we as people in the schools, is that we are actually focused on 80% of just teaching and then correcting when people are not doing a behavior or, doing, or have a behavior that's disrupting that teaching, right? And it's completely removed then the whole point of building healthy community, which is gets very granular. It's how we greet each other. It is who I see represented on the walls around me. It's the sounds I hear. It's the spaces I'm in. It's safe space to go to when I don't feel okay. It's not being okay to not be okay. Is that okay in school? Right? It's all these things that have to happen. And so as a teacher, it comes down to, I think, first thinking about the classroom, the relationships. And when we talk about relationships, especially from the adult-child power structure, we are talking about trusting intimate relationships, not that you share space with another person. So the first thing for a teacher is, what are those trusting relationships? Have you built those with each of your students? Where are they lacking? How can trust be built? And we use a model from Brene Brown around braving to really talk through that deeply. But number one, it's on the adult in any group, whether it's your work group, your classroom, whatever. But you collaboratively determine what are the values? What are the guidelines? What are the expectations that we are holding each other to? We create those together. We modify them as needed. So that's really where things shift. And we know in de-escalation that as an adult stays de-escalated, a child has the potential to be able to also de-escalate. If we have escalated, unregulated adults, we never can have a regulated child, period. Children will unregulate and stay unregulated. Say that again. I feel like that's... In order for a child to regulate, an adult has to be regulated. And a child can deregulate to their level. If an adult is unregulated, they're escalated, right? They're stressed out, angry, haven't slept, have a short attention span, whatever it is in their reaction to the kid. The kid will become unregulated if they're not already, and they can never re-regulate because it's based on the adult in that space. So that's where we get to granular, right? Again, we're not talking about a discipline matrix or a, a way for you to command these kids. It's about changing your point of view on relationship and power. And looking at what is the point? Like the point is for these kids to learn. The point is for these kids to be feasible, lovely participants in our society, right? Not to just learn some math that day. And when we come from that perspective, no wonder we're losing that battle, right? Because they're there for other things. Like the kids are there for the influence of each other and the relationships and the development. So 
I think we're going to get to dismantling the system always if you're actually really participating in restorative process. So interesting. So I'm trying to envision, so say like a math teacher. I don't have a background in social emotional learning. What is my checklist for making sure that these practices are dialed in in my classroom, that it's happening? So I think some very easy practices, no matter if you're a math teacher, an art teacher, whatever, whatever it is you're teaching, there's really key components that each, I think, classroom can put into place along with school-wide you can put into place. And so as students come in the classroom, a warm welcome, that could be something connecting the material to yesterday, that could be checking in on how people are feeling, and that could be also asking what they ate for breakfast or what their favorite animal is, right? It could be a a schema of things. It could be an activity. So a connection, some kind of intentional connection. Exactly. And in my experience with being a teacher in the classroom and utilizing this, it is a really great way to gauge how your students are feeling and walking into the classroom. Because even if you're not asking them exactly how they're doing, how they participate in some of those smaller connection and social components can give you an idea of reading the room. And that might help you navigate some of those next things like, wow, people are just really tired today. Like maybe we should try this or this, or I could alter this or try this as a group activity. You know, just some of those really innovative thoughts based off of kind of that, not only gauging for readiness, but also giving them an opportunity to connect with you and other students in the room. Another opportunity is exit tickets or an optimistic closure. I would say and or is kind of in between there. You could do either or both. Optimistic closure is thinking about, you know, maybe asking them what they're planning to do for the weekend or what's one thing you're really excited about with snow coming, you know, whatever it might be. And it's just another way, like a warm welcome, is to leave them with something positive. And I think that also shows a different level of engagement because you're not asking them a math problem to leave the room. You're asking them something kind of fun and leads itself to those social components that people are always looking for. And then an exit ticket could do both or either of these things too. You could gauge material, see where people are at, see if you need to maybe repeat something the next day versus going forward. Or it could be more of an anonymous type exit ticket and asking like, hey, what's going on for you right now? How are these things going? What do you need for support? Is there something I'm missing in the classroom that might be really helpful? I think in a society, we say, hey, how are you doing, right? And most of that is in passing, and we're expecting somebody to say, good, great, how are you? But I think as you really dive into those questions and ask people, what do you need? How are you? What do you need for support? You might be able to get some of those larger answers that people are really actually needing versus the like, oh, I'm good, I'm fine, that we get in person. So those are, I think, two pieces at the beginning and the end of classes that you can utilize for any subject. Well, and you mentioned before I even started recording today, you both mentioned that you were doing a workshop for educators around their own self-care. Mm-hmm. So that seems to tie back in a huge way to what Yarowell was saying about the adult in the room needing to be regulated, needing to be in a positive, good space because you're going to set that tone. So say I've, I've checked that box, you know, I've shown up, I've been early, I'm prepared, I'm ready, I'm in a good frame of mind, I greet my kids, but I discern that one of my students is not in a good place today. They are struggling, but I need to launch into the lesson. So what, I, what do I do? Well, I think that when it comes down to that like 80% we were talking about earlier of that preparedness, that we're proactive, right? 
If we are proactive, we might have many options for that child to go into a different space and to feel better. Maybe they need to go eat. Maybe they need to go sit with someone and talk. Maybe they just need to go like fidget around for a little bit. That could be a space in the corner of your room. That could be a designated space in the school, right? It just like depends on how you've structured that. But I think one is that we should be expecting that, right? We should expect people to show up in the morning and not be okay sometimes. It'll happen like 90% of the time you're going to have right. a kid who's off, right? Right. And for how do we get back together? What Deanna said, like amplifying that is that especially now we know we're living in a time where people are living in crisis, continual change, high stress, lots of unknowns, lots of health issues and sickness and things going on, fear. When we know that, we should know we need more regulation, right? Mm -hmm. So where it used to maybe be enough to hang out for 15 minutes at the beginning and the end of class, now maybe you need to spend the entire Monday regulating, right? We're living in a pandemic. We're living in a crisis. And I think that that's where the deep solution-oriented mindset comes from is how do we actually meet need currently, finding a solution, knowing that we're trying to get through this situation. And so I think we're asking, we need more of that. Like, actually, we should be shifting lessons where we're actually centering on everyone being regulated, feeling safe and trusting, feeling influenced by their peers, and ready to go learn, right? Actually in a brain space to go learn because we're living in very high trauma right now. Because if we try to push through and say, okay, I know we're all feeling scared and, and maybe acknowledge it, but we need to get through this lesson. They're not learning anyway. Right. No, we, we, may have pushed, we may have pushed through the content, but there was no learning happening. Well, I mean, I think we can look at ourselves first. Let's not even talk about the kids. Like, how many times are you forgetting things throughout the day right now? Do you have to write things down differently? Have you had to figure out a new way to live? If the answer is yes, it's because you're under stress and you're traumatized. Your brain is not working the same, right? Yeah. It doesn't work the same for me right now. Probably not for you and yeah. definitely not for children, right? I mean, all of my friends are saying that the world feels flat and I don't understand why suddenly I feel like I need a nap in the afternoon. I mean, I'm doing my fitness. I'm getting outside. I'm doing all the things. Why do I still hit the wall every afternoon and feel like I need a nap? Because we're in trauma. So I want to turn, I want to turn the corner just a little bit and talk about trauma because in addition to restorative process, you both specialize in trauma-informed instruction. And I honestly don't know what that means or looks like. And so I'm assuming that probably some of my listeners don't either. And so can you just unpack that? key components to what what it would mean is I think a lot of it, again, is on the responsibility of the adults to learn what is trauma, what can it look like. If you see a kid's right screaming in the classroom, they need attention for something. It's probably not because they're sitting there and they're bored. It's probably because they don't know how to read the material or they need assistance in getting supplies or you know something along those lines. I know it's kind of a, a random example, but I think it shows that no matter what the behavior is, we're still, we're communicating something. And I think for adults to understand, I think a lot of it comes down to kind of brain development is a huge piece of it. So that's more complex, but I think it comes down to the simple identifiers like we've mentioned, like Maslow's. This student might not have a home. This student might not have support from parents or guardians. They may not have eaten this morning. And those are all things that even in a small amount of time, but over time can be very traumatic. Things like divorce. I mean, there's so many different things that happen in life that can cause trauma for individuals. And so 
as those things compile, we may see more and more challenging behavior. And so I think as an educator or any adult in the building, it's to understand, hmm, okay, the kid's screaming. That means they might need something, right? They're not doing it to just be annoying or to just to sit there and be like, I'm going to disrupt the whole class. I hope this totally derails us and we're never going to learn anything, right? I, I really don't think that that's ever the intention. <laughs> no one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to do everything I can to like have a horrible day, disrupt everybody around me. Nobody has that intention. It's a body response, right? Your body's responding to the trauma that you're feeling. And especially as children, you're not recognizing that. Maybe as an adult, I'm like, whoo, I did not get sleep. This happened today. I might just be on edge, right? We might be able to recognize those things as adults. As children, we have no, they have no idea. And so that might cause them to scream in the classroom or hit another kid or throw a pencil or whatever it might be. And so I think as adults, we really want to recognize that as not to be malicious, but to get a need met or to un, you know, begin to lower the amount of stimuli that that student is getting at that time. It's kind of triggering to even talk about it, right? Because you feel compassion for all of the things that your students are dealing with in their lives. And you just kind of want to gather them in. What kind of tools can teachers have in their classroom? And when I say tools, I mean both practices and like physical tools. I mean, traditionally, schoolrooms are horrible. You know, they're, they have uncomfortable chairs. They have horrible, cold linoleum floors, and they're not welcoming spaces. So I know schools are trying to do more and more around creating better, more welcoming spaces for learning. But what can teachers do, both physically and practice-wise, to be ready when a student is having a trauma response? Well, there are some really there are some really cool tools that already exist. And again, it goes back, I'm sorry to keep saying it, but it is the basis of that 80% proactive, like you said, like being prepared. So for many schools, this means first like thinking about the classroom the way you were talking about is what is a safe, comfortable space feel like? Where are we lacking that and how do we turn the classroom into that? You know, there's been conversations for a long time around collaborative learning, project-centered learning, getting rid of the desk having open spaces and changing the structure of the rooms. Yes. Things like that alone change so much, right? And that's that proactive space that you're yeah. setting up. For younger kids, this is not good for older kids, but you know, in elementary school, they have really cool like RP peace walks that you can go and stencil outside and take kids on walks, which are like the process of thinking through harm that's happened or something that's happened and why, how they participated in it, how it affected them. So there's things like that, right? Where you can physically take people and not just talk with them. We additionally have really been pushing this last year to get rid of reflection forms. Those are not restorative. Those are punitive. And to think about what did you actually want a reflection form to do, right? Instead of asking someone what they did wrong and why they should be in trouble and what they're sorry for, what, we're do what we really want is we want them to build skills so this doesn't happen again. So how do you use a reflection time to do that? And to do that means you have to probably come back a couple times that day. Reflect on what happened at the time, reflect at the end of the day or maybe tomorrow, right? You need to focus on what happened, like what happened, not what are you responsible for, but what happened? How are you a part of that? What then do you feel can you be accountable for and what do you do to fix that problem? And additionally, resetting people, right? Like 
the reason that you show up to school in a really bad mood after your mom yelled at you in the car is because no one has taught you skills yet or given you space to go reset, <laughs> right? What does that mean? You have to learn that. That is not something that humans are born knowing how to do, which again goes back to SEL being the basis of everything. And we don't have good models. Absolutely not. Or good leadership, right? That industrialized, well, just as long as you're not bleeding, go sit back down, go teach, right? (laughs) Which is not love for self and love for others. So I think that it's a lot of that and really being focused on how are you going to always integrate people back into your community? So when you have a kid that's disruptive, How are you not just going to pretend it didn't happen, punish them and go back to teaching, but how are we as a community, a classroom community, going to talk about what happened, really look at the effects of it and give some space to that? And that's where having those proactive activities like Deanna mentioned of welcome time and closing time, relationship safety building time structured into your class gives you space to do that, right? So then maybe tomorrow's welcome is not going to just be chatting, it can actually be talking about our feelings from the day before and how we want to do better today as a group, right? It's again, creating that space and understanding that teaching shouldn't be industrialized. You should, an educator is not just there to teach math, right? Or to teach art. If you're choosing to be an educator in a community, which is a school, you're choosing to participate in a community, which is the development of everyone there and the growth together. Garewell's use of the word industrialize put me in mind of the late Sir Ken Robinson's words about how education needs to be more like a farm and less like a factory. The emphasis in agricultural systems in the Industrial Revolution turned to output and to the plant. And the price we've paid is the erosion of soils. Organic farming is based on the opposite principle. Organic farmers, for to begin with, promote diversity. Uh, they look at the health and ecology of the whole system, but the emphasis is on the soil. If you get the soil right, the plants will grow and be healthy. And these are sustainable and natural processes. Well, I think what's happened in our education systems is we've become preoccupied with yield and output uh, in just the same way as we have in industrial processes with data-driven outcomes. And along the way, we've lost sight of the natural process of teaching and learning. And in doing that, we've eroded the culture of education, the culture of learning. So I think we need to change metaphor and see education as a human process uh, where children and students flourish under certain sorts of conditions. And our job is to create those conditions in schools. What that means is, and that's what I try to argue in creative schools, is that we need to get back to basics, as we keep saying. We need to look at how children learn, why they learn, what they should learn, and then look at creating optimum conditions in schools where they want to learn and where teachers are enabled to help them to do that. There's an ecosystem. Our job is to facilitate teaching and learning, to encourage teachers in their roles of doing that. The role of a school is to create a climate where schools and teachers together can achieve that. The role of districts and of nations is to create an overall political climate where those conditions are encouraged. In other words, the real shift in education has to come from the ground up as well as from the top down. It's all about creating the environment, and that is controlled by policy. We all get a little fired up thinking about this. We have to look to our federal government and be angry at them for the way things are, because a lot of the reason that we are set up to focus on testing, focus on that machine of industrialization is because that's how school districts get funded. And until we want to call out who's really responsible for that, we're going to continue to just be frustrated and be spinning our wheels 
there's only so much a district can do, a school community can do, a family can do, right? When we are all upholden to this federal structure that is actually made to continue the industrialization. You know, I really think it comes down to how do we shift mindset? Because I think as we go through our work, there is a lot of people and policies put in place based off of how we've done things in the past. What's the ideation of (laughs) the education? And right now it is standardized testing, getting kids through this industrial type system like we've been talking about. It's not about how do we provide and develop productive citizens of society and life skills and social components, right? It's, it's kind of about how do we get them to learn math, to get a job, to do this instead of really growing like a whole person, a whole child. The other thing I would say is there's, there, I think there's a lack of innovation. We've spent so much time coming up with policies, procedures, extra things like fidgets, behavior plans, whatever it might be to accommodate specific needs for students that are identified to have maybe an IEP or a 504. However, a lot of techniques and strategies in innovative thinking that's been used in special education could apply to any kid, right? (laughs) And so I think that's missing when we do a lot of cookie cutter policies and procedures. We'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. This is Mike Cronley, the co-founder and CEO of Class Composer, And we are proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. At Class Composer, we are on a mission to help elementary schools create positive learning environments where kids can grow academically and socially. Class Composer empowers you to take a huge first step in creating a nurturing and safe learning environment. Their newest update includes data wall, notation, grouping, and communication functions. Find them at edcuration.com. Now back to our interview. Deanna and Yarrowell mentioned one resource that has informed their district practices for transforming school culture, and it's the book Tomorrow's Children, A Blueprint, Partnership Education in the 21st Century. It's from the Center for Partnership Studies. I asked Yarrowell to say a little about how this book has shaped their thinking. I mean, all the aspects we've talked about of healthy climate and culture from the actual building structure, to the lighting, to the field, to the welcoming and the reflection of yourself, right? All those aspects are part of partnership education, definitely. When we look at the history of our civilization, it has been split into two camps, which is partnership-centered or domination-centered, and that we are currently on the cycle of a domination-centered culture. And so when we look at that, right, one, The larger discussion is like, how do we evolve to the next step of partnership again? So really moving from that, like learn the material and take a test to invoking the material, right? And working in collaboration, working on projects, devising things you're interested in, and really changing the way we learn so that it is focused on kids, not just learning material and regurgitating it, but being a part of that analytical thinking of how does the world work? Why? And how do we want it to work? What, are we, what do we do to move it forward in a way that we participate in and we want to see reflected in the world? And so the school itself has to reflect that, right? It has to be built in collaboration with the kids. The kids have to have a voice. So that's really the centering of it is rethinking like, what is education for? I think I really love your analogy of going back to like creating the soil. And so this book and this framework is really that, the fact of if we worked in partnership in education, we would be creating soil. 
I'm wondering if you are feeling hopeful because your jobs are all about reform and bringing positive, helpful practices to teachers district-wide and to students. How have you seen this reform schools? And do you feel hopeful? Are you encouraged by it? I was at the high school and really implementing this and figuring out a lot of like trial and error. We as educators are trying to figure out what the heck is restorative process? How does it work in my building? How do I do it? How do we get from theory to practice? Well, when we sit down and ask a student, what do you need? I wouldn't know how to answer that, right? (laughs) No one's ever asked me that before. If I was a sixth grader, I've been in trouble a hundred times. I usually go to in school suspension. I do this. And then all of a sudden somebody comes in and says, what do you need? What kind of support? Be like, what the heck? Right? So it's this learning process. And so as I figured that out with students, there were so many success stories months later when a student was finally like, this is what I need. Or can you help me with this? Or can, I, can, you, can you set up a time that I could go talk to that teacher? Those were huge moments, right? And I, I think that that's what gives me hope is even though it's such a long road, implementation is anywhere between three and 10 years to be successful for a whole school, let alone district-wide. I think that's what gives me the most hope. I love that. Would you be willing to share one of your success stories from a specific classroom or teacher student? Yeah, sure. So I worked with a student. He was, I always like to call him like the big protector, this big kid who always looked out for other students, but did it in a way that came off as very aggressive or violent. Deanna shared how this student was always in trouble for fighting, cussing, and being defiant to teachers. At first, he was really resistant to talking and thought it was weird that she was reaching out to him, but she just kept her door open. Even though I felt like sometimes those meetings were unsuccessful, something was developing in him and something was changing for him. This student was working on recovering credit and he had to be in his seat in the classroom to earn enough credit to graduate. But then he blew up at a teacher and he walked out of class. After months of not being very receptive to the process, he came to Deanna's office. And said, oh, I think I messed up, right? Like, I think I really need to apologize to that teacher and I need to get back in that seat, don't I? And I think it was a huge moment for him, but also a huge moment to show that this maybe isn't going, this process may not work right away, but it is something that helps in development, right? The keyword is development. As he was able to regulate, de-escalate a little bit and understand like, what is going to be my next step? Do I just walk out, go home and lose credit? Or do I make things right, feel like I'm a part of this community that he protects all the time and be able to go forward? How do you, in this structure, where and how do you differentiate between trauma and mental illness? Well, I think Deanna said it well earlier that we don't have an emphasis on wellness, of mental health and wellness of humans in general. So I think just informing some education, some engagement in that is really important. I also, I don't know, I feel that this is so deeply connected to that like building of community because, you know, restorative process is around working with someone, right? Or with others. And I think that we are lacking that, right? Like there's even when we want to have schools that are community centered, the truth is that the school leaders are not from that community. The teachers are not from that community. The staff are not from that community when we have all white staff and all black and brown children. We have all staff that are coming from a different community to serve the community they work in, right? 
I think that these kind of decentering and splintering, which again goes back to industrialization, I have a degree, I have a title, so I can do this job wherever they place me. That way that we work and we think about education, I think is such a linchpin for the problem, really. It's like rethinking that from the shape of what a community is and how you work together. Yeah, because then it's no longer the village educating our children. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Ah, Well, thank you. I would love to be able to tell our listeners where they can find you and where they might be able to access some of the resources that you've talked about. I think a couple that I could just give a quick shout out for would be Oakland Unified School District has a RP implementation guide that is very well done, along with Chicago Public Schools has one as well. Denver also has one as well. I kind of say the mesh of the three of them is where we get all of our work because there's good pieces of each. And where can we find you, Yarowell, first of all? And do you have any resources you'd like to add to that list? Yeah. So similar to Deanna, you can find me at DPS, but I also have a consulting practice called Intersectional Innovations. And so you can find my website online, intersectionalinnovations.com. I just want to thank you both so much for taking the time out of your very, very busy and demanding days. I wish you both the best with your work and continue to just carry the flag and make the world a better place. It was such a privilege to talk to you today. You can find all mentioned resource links where our podcast is hosted on Podbean. And you can find this and all of our episodes pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. If you're wondering about a first step in creating a more positive and intentional school culture, equitable class lists are a great start. Class Composer makes it easy. Jennifer McKinley, principal at Lawrence Avenue Elementary in Potsdam, New York, said, Class Composer is a game changer. No more mixed colored index cards, post-it notes, and hours wasted on trying to balance class lists. If my staff loves it, so will yours. Trust me. Simply find Class Composer at Ed Curation, click the Connect to Vendor button, and learn about their sandbox experience and their free grade-level trial option. And while you're there, check out our exploration micro-professional learning courses. They're brief, immediately applicable, and they include resources and a continuing education certificate. Best of all, they're free. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to like and share and join us again next week on the Ed Curation Podcast, where we partner with educators and innovators everywhere to reshape learning.